1: Hello, hi, and welcome to another episode of the Emma Gunn Show. I am your host, Emma Gunn-Awardner, and in this episode, I'm joined by someone who studies happiness for a living. Yes, you heard that right. My guest on this episode is Mike Viking, the chief executive of the Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen, and his job is ultimately looking for ways to measure and define happiness. In 2001, to give you a little bit of a backstory, in 2001, the UN published a resolution which stated that, um, air quotes people, the pursuit of happiness is a fundamental human goal. And in 2012, it released its first World Happiness Report. And that World Happiness Report took into account a number of factors, including health, family, job security, as well as social factors such as political freedom and government corruption, and many other things. The report has been published every year since, and Denmark has topped the list four out of five times. It was Denmark's, well, this, yes, you're thinking, hang on, Emma, there are six. I think that that data is old, but let's put it that way. Denmark has done very well. Thank you very much. Indeed, they have uh, topped the charts pretty much most of the time. It was Denmark's high performance that prompted Mike, who is uh, from Denmark, to take on the mantle of exploring the topic further. And in 2013, the Happiness Research Institute was founded. In the meantime, Mike has also written two books, The Little Book of Hooger, Hygge meaning cozy togetherness or coziness of the soul. Um, there's no way you could have missed Hygge in 2018. It was everywhere. Every gift shop was uh, using it to leverage sales. Uh, we were all buying comfortable throws for everything. And I think offices had little, <laughs> started to incorporate cushions or some sort of you know Hygge area. Now I definitely know people who were talking about that. So that's uh, what Hygge is. And the little book of Luca. I forgive my accent, which roughly translated is happiness. So he's had these two books in the meantime, and his next book, The Art of Making Memories, is out later this year. But he was in London and I had the chance to speak to him and getting an opportunity to speak to someone who special, who's special whose specialist subject is happiness really appealed to me. <laughs> so in this episode I asked Mike about deep diving into happiness. How you assign scientific measures against something so abstract and subjective? Because ultimately, that is what the research institute has to do in order to validate the study of happiness and begin to understand it more. And what keys to happiness is observed in people and so much more. Um, It was a fun chat. It was interesting to uh, speak to someone whose full time job is what is happiness? Um, Now, teensy bit of housekeeping. Not had great luck recently, have we? I, I I recorded this at Penguin, uh, which is on the Strand in central London, for anyone who is interested. and we were given a lovely meeting room in order to record this episode. And you will hear approximately five minutes into the show because when I walked to the when I was walking to the room, I noticed that there was an area and there was some cutlery and there were some things set out, and I didn't really think much of it because I was thinking about the uh, the podcast. And five minutes into this episode and you'll hear it. Uh, two other conference rooms on the same floor and emptied out and they all had a stand-up lunch in the corridor and in the area just outside the room so and you can hear it in the background the whole time and when it started Mike and I were sort of looking at each other and I was there was a lot of non-verbal should we stop but uh, he only had an hour so it was a case of do we risk it and uh, go and find somebody who could potentially move us and maybe eat into the time or do we just continue and we decided through non-verbal communication and wide eyes to just let's just go for it so um it is uh it is slightly different to have this kind of background noise if you listen to woody geist podcast he often records in restaurants or foyers and you can hear people milling around so i'm going to say that it's like his podcast which is one of my favorites and not get too upset about the fact that there is um an element of background noise. Oh, and then there's a drill towards the end, which uh, just becomes hilarious at that point. Anyway, so yes, a little bit of housekeeping. Apologies about that. Um, The good thing to note is I have already recorded some future episodes at the time that I am publishing this, and there are no sound issues on those. So we've obviously just had a bit of a blip. If you want to get in touch with the show, don't forget you can email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com, or you can follow me on social media, uh, where I am at Emma Guns on Instagram and Twitter. And you can slide into my DMs there too. Obviously, you can join the closed Facebook group. The link to join is in the show notes. But here he is making his debut, talking all things happiness, on The Emma Gunn Show. It's Mike Viking. (laughs) Now, this is a conversation I am so excited about having. Listeners, I'm here with Mike Viking. Real name, son of wolf. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Yes, which is amazing. And thank you for joining me because what a wonderful way to spend a beautiful, sunny <laughs> lunchtime than talking about happiness. Right. Because maybe it's something that we don't focus on all that much. Do you think? I mean, you do in your job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I,
2: I actually, I think we actually do. I think we focus on happiness a lot. I think it is a common pursuit Mm -hmm. across countries, across cultures, across time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we have been for centuries in a constant pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. But I think we also sometimes look for happiness in the wrong places and that we could do better.
1: Yes. Now, to put you into context, I will have obviously given you a glowing introduction. But would you mind just explaining in your own words your role? Because you have a whole institute devoted right. to this. Yes. So what's your role?
2: So I started something called the Happiness Research Institute, which is a think tank located, located in Copenhagen, where we essentially try to answer three questions. So we try to figure out, first of all, how can we measure Happiness, well being, quality of life. Mm-hmm. Secondly, why is it that some people are happier than others? And thirdly, how can we improve quality of life? So, mm-hmm. what we, when we know what we know from data and science and, and happiness research, how should we design our policies differently, our cities differently, our workplaces differently, and, and basically improve quality of life for people?
1: And so, okay, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that starts so much. Like, first of all, how does one measure happiness?
2: so we like to do several things or or use several principles first of all we acknowledge that happiness is a wide umbrella term so Mm -hmm. you have one perception of what happiness or the good life is i have another one Mm -hmm. um so we always break happiness down into different dimensions Mm -hmm. and it's also what we do when we meet other wide complex terms because when we talk about how's the british economy doing we would also break that down into you know, growth, GDP levels, unemployment, Mm -hmm. inflation, and so on. And that gives us a language to talk about how's the British economy doing. Mm -hmm. So that's also what we do with with happiness. So we break it down into um, overall life satisfaction. So taking a step back, looking at our lives, how satisfied are we with that? Mm -hmm. We also look at what kind of emotions do people experience here and now or yesterday, both positive and negative emotions. So happiness, but also loneliness and stress and worry and, and, and so on. Um, we also look at whether people have a sense of purpose in mm-hmm. life. Um, that builds on Aristotle's perception of of, of happiness. You thought the, the good life was the meaningful life. And then we say well, what is important to us is how Emma feels about her life. Mm-hmm. You know, we say you are actually the only one that can tell us whether you are happy or not. Mm-hmm. So that's what we should give value. Um, and then ideally what we like Is we like to follow people over time so we and and um, other scientists follow perhaps 10,000 people from London over 10 years and then we see you know what happens when people move to the countryside Mm -hmm. or gain a promotion or double their income or get married or have kids and so on so see how what is the average impact of different life events on these different dimensions of happiness so that's the brief explanation of how we try
1: to measure. I'm already mesmerized <laughs> listeners I like so many questions okay but, and you have actually uh you have data meaning I've seen your graphs Mike mm. um so you actually have you've ranked cities and countries so you've actually been able to um say if a place is happier than another place and what overall with the findings? Because we have an international audience. Right.
2: So um, there is something called the, the World Happiness Report, mm-hmm. which is commissioned by the UN. And uh, it's the Gallup organization that collects data, and mm-hmm. they collect it across 155 countries, wow, so. um, and calculate a national average. And, and here we're focusing on life satisfaction, so overall happiness mm. with your life. Um, and there we can see some quite clear patterns in terms of which countries are happier than others. And often the Nordic countries do well, so Sweden, Finland, Norway, Iceland, Denmark, but also Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, Switzerland uh, does quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, and at you know, the, the other end of the scale, you have the least happy countries being Syria, Central African Republic, mm-hmm. uh, Afghanistan, for, for obvious reasons. Um, so, so yeah, there, there is a lot of data being collected in this field, actually.
1: And how does, say, uh, the UK, the US rank?
2: So, usually in the top 20. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you are actually doing uh, relatively well uh, from, from a global perspective. Uh, the US have dropped uh, in the past few reports uh, from... 17 to 18 to 18 to 19, mm-hmm. and, and could also be projected to go further down in the coming reports.
1: Mm-hmm. And is... <laughs> I find happiness such a... As you say, such a subjective subject. And how, like you said earlier, what makes Emma happy? How will I know? <laughs> Not to sound like Whitney Houston. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> is
2: this where you break into a song...
1: Oh, honestly, um, there's a lot of clenching going on not to burst into song. I'm so sorry. It's just who I am. That makes me happy. But, um, but yes, how, how do you know if you're happy?
2: I think we know it when we feel it. I, I, think, I think we make happiness too mysterious. Ah. Yes, it is subjective. Yes, it is in, you know, intangible. But so is a lot of things. Mm. I mean, loneliness is also very subjective Mm. Um, worry also very subjective stress also very subjective depression also subjective all of those things are how we as individuals experience the world
1: just had a, a light bulb moment because you know the conversation about mental health is louder and broader than it has ever been yes which is great i think i agree um and so I now better understand how other people experience depression and anxiety, for example. And I have also tried to articulate my own experiences with depression and anxiety. And do we need to now make the conversation about what happiness feels like louder and broader so we can all understand? So it's not the same experience,
2: I think what we need to make louder is the overall conversation around mental health.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think happiness is part of that conversation. I think depression is very much part of that mm-hmm. conversation. And actually, I'm very happy to see that the UK is leading in that field mm-hmm. in normalizing the conversation around mental health. Mm-hmm. You are not at the goal zone yet. Uh, there's still a long way to go. Mm-hmm. But you're actually doing relatively well with having an open conversation around mental health issues that some other countries could take inspiration from.
1: Have you, in your research, uh, sort of unpicked that and seen whether that kind of conversation is actually helpful in terms of minimising the instances of it or increasing the, uh, uh, the instances of people actually seeking help earlier rather than later?
2: Well... It's interesting, the country I get most visits from, or we get most visits from, at the Happiness Research Institute, is South Korea. Now South Korea is an interesting and a tragic case in happiness research, um, because uh, they have really struggled with converting their wealth into well-being. Um, So they have had a tremendous increase in GDP over the last couple of generations, uh, but are, are struggling with creating quality of life for people. So there's a tremendous amount of pressure on people in general, on Mm -hmm. young people in particular. Um, And there is a real taboo around mental illness in uh, South Korea. Um, I, I still remember a conversation I had with a young, brilliant man from South Korea who has started a foundation to reduce the stigma around mental illness in South Korea, in part because he lost his mother to suicide Uh, but sometimes in the family they refer to it as a traffic accident Um, and we can also see in the data for uh, south korea uh, that they're actually not uh, using uh, uh, antidepressants Mm -hmm. we can have a conversation around you know are that the right treatment for people Uh, but i think Of course, it's not a good sign if you have a large consumption of antidepressant in a country, but I think it is also a worse sign if you have people that are depressed in a country and do not have access to treatment or have a fear of seeking treatment in different forms. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think think we see evidence of where you have societies where it is a social stigma to suffer from mental illness, Mm -hmm. then people suffer in general. Right. when it comes to happiness and depression.
1: And what what role does gratitude play in it? Is that what we that the touch point we're not focusing on as much? I think
2: I think it's a, I think it's one of the ingredients. Mm. Um,
1: ah, the recipe for happiness.
2: The recipe for happiness and, and, and I think often the conversations they try to make happiness into a one ingredient dish. Mm-hmm. You know, what is happiness? What is the key to happiness? And and honestly I don't think there is a key to happiness. I think happiness is an ingredient, or is a dish with a lot of ingredients. Gratitude being one of them, good quality relationships being another, health, a healthy family being a third, having a job we are passionate about, or having some hobbies we love to to pursue, uh, a fourth. I think it takes a lot of things to be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so happiness is complicated. Uh, it is subjective, but I think. This is the most important question we can ask, Mm. how can we create good conditions for good lives? So I think we should have a scientific approach to understanding that Mm -hmm. question. This is what people like to be. This is what politicians should be interested in. How do we create good policies for people to thrive? Mm -hmm. So let's try and throw some evidence on the table and make better decisions.
1: Because uh, when I was uh, researching, reading your books and watching your TED Talk, obviously, listeners, the links to the books and the video will be in the show notes. Um, I uh, had had a pang of guilt around the relationships segment because, um, A, I'm so wedded to my phone and a lot of my friendships are conducted via messaging services and additionally in my pursuit of trying to be <clears throat> mentally robust i have uh, found real strength in being self sufficient which means that i sort of was watching it thinking gosh have i done myself a disservice long in the long term by trying to be self sufficient and not mm. and sort of almost weakening those friendships and i wonder if a sense of community a sense of belonging and whether the bonds of relationships are getting weaker because of things like social media or because of just how stressful and uh, constant the bombardment of everything else can be right. on an individual? I mean,
2: we, we've done a couple of studies on this um, at the Happiness Research Institute. And our first study showed that yes, social media can have a negative effect on well being. We actually just published a new study two weeks ago um, where we try and dig a little deeper and see that it's, it's actually more nuanced than that. That the effect also depends on what kind of behavior do people have. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think we can sum it up by saying sharing over staring. And What we mean by that is having using social media in an active way connecting with other people, sharing stuff, um, 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 instead of just being passive and staring at what are other people doing. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a a better predictor of whether social media has a positive or negative uh, impact on people's lives. So we probably also... um, must drop. In, in, in Denmark, at least, or in Danish, we, we, we talk about something called screen time. I don't know whether that's a, mm-hmm. a thing in the UK as well. Yeah,
1: it, it pops up on my phone every Sunday right? and yeah. beats me up. <laughs> and uh,
2: I think, you know, it makes as much sense to talk about screen time as it does to talk about book time. You know, it depends on what you do with the screen, it depends on what you read. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so again, it, it is, we should look more at what kind of behavior do people have on social media, on the screens. And, and not just say up front that well all social media activity is bad all screen time is bad mm-hmm. that's not necessarily the case
1: mm. but um, okay that's interesting but what about real, t- real time real face to face interactions because I noticed you talked about smiling at people in the street <laughs> <laughs> and right. I've lived and worked in London now for nearly 20 <laughs> years and I have developed a bit shield <laughs> And I think everyone that I know has developed a bit shield. Right. And to this point, I went to Edinburgh last week. I was walking down the road. I felt very relaxed and I started smiling at people. Right. And then this guy came up to me and tried to put something in my hand. And I was like, no, no, no way. And then I went back and then my bit shield reinforced right, itself. Right, right. But, I mean, London isn't, wor- isn't the worst at eye contact and smiling, is it?
2: Well, I mean, so... I know why you ask this question is because I, I had a weird hobby for a couple of years. Uh, we all like to you know, visit new cities and sit and drink a cup of coffee and watch people go by.
1: Flannering. I love it.
2: <laughs> so, so, so what I did was just systematically collect data on the frequency of people smiling in the street. So we would sit in a cafe. And then we would say, okay, the first person who comes around the corner, will observe that person for five seconds. will register: are they smiling or not? Gender, estimate the age, mm-hmm. what are they doing? Are they drinking coffee? Are they on the phone?
0: Mm-hmm. And so on.
2: So we we uh, collected more than than 10,000 observations in that uh, with that with that method, and then s- saw in which cities. I think I collected data in more than 30 cities. In which cities are people smiling more or less? And what are people doing and i'll get back to what they were doing and and Mm -hmm. which cities were smiling more because i also just want to say i don't equal smiling with being happy Mm -hmm. so for me smiling is a communication tool we can also see from other studies that smiling is culturally perceived differently in different cultures Mm -hmm. Um, but it was because i Heard a lot of people saying, well, you know, I visit the Nordic countries and they're supposedly, you know, the happiest countries in the world, but people aren't smiling. Well, what is the case there? And I just thought, okay, let's collect data. You know, are people smiling mm-hmm. more or less in the Nordic countries? Um, so what we found was that uh, Malaga, in the th- cities I collected data in, was the city where we saw the, the highest frequency of smiles. I think it was ar- around... Uh, 13% of people were smiling and we found the least uh, lowest frequencies in cities like London and New York. Mm-hmm. So, um, does that necessarily mean that, that people are... Uh, so, so uh, yeah. The other pattern we saw was which under which circumstances are people smiling and people are far more inclined to smile when they are in company with other people.
0: Right? Mm-hmm. When
2: we interact, when we talk, we smile again because it's a tool of communication. We don't walk by ourselves smiling. Well, you did one time. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but usually I, w- I wouldn't do that in Copenhagen. I wouldn't go smiling necessarily by myself down the street because then people think you're a little bit crazy. Um, so, so, so it is perhaps more a question of are people in company with other people? And we could see in the data, well, in Malaga, in Kuala Lumpur, which was also a high-frequency, smiling city, people are far more inclined to walk in groups of two or more. Oh, Um,
0: interesting.
2: So that's why perhaps London, New York, well, a lot of people are, you know, walking to work. And we could also see within London very different frequencies, whether you you collected data uh, downtown London, Bank District mm-hmm. or uh, in Hyde Park for instance you would also see differences there.
1: I thought you were going to say there was a correlation between perception of safety of the city and the place and the smiling
2: Ah mm, I don't know
1: hmm. not
2: in, well not in that study I uh, collected data in because some of the unsafest cities I was in like in some Mexican cities uh, there were quite high levels of, of smiling there Um, but we've seen in another study we've done uh, in a European study uh, called the the good home report we looked at what drives happiness with people's home and in that one we could see that safety was one of the the key uh, factors there
1: interesting and the coziness the hygge (laughs) Am I saying that correctly? You are are saying saying it very good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Well, I just... Who doesn't love to be cosy and snuggly and feel safe and warm? Um, We are a deeply divided society, and the future is uncertain. Although, has the future ever been certain? Um, The environment is on a knife edge. Um, I turned on a news app today i know listeners i should have deleted it um i turned on a news app today and the city that i am in currently is being called you know a bloodbath so it would be right and correct for me to feel a sense of tension potentially and i just wondered do we should we even be happy right now
2: oh, um i think that is up to the individual to decide for themselves i mean at the Happiness Research Institute, uh, we try to understand what are good conditions for good lives. Mm-hmm. We also say that, you know, unhappiness is part of this thing called the human experience. Mm-hmm. That none of us, myself included, are happy all the time. I, as my colleagues, get worried and stressed and, you know, anxious just as much as 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 the next guy. Um, I think what we should do is I think we should have a, a short-term and a long-term goal. If we want to be happy, yes, there is something we can do um, in order to improve our mood on a daily basis. But there's also, I think, some, some long-term ambitions, uh, mm-hmm. which goes more in the direction of what you're talking about, You know, in terms of catering for the environment and some of the global challenges that we face mm-hmm. also with inequality across gender and, and class and, and countries um, that should be a goal also to reduce uh, causes for extreme unhappiness mm. due to environmental um, disaster and you know, injustices and mm. uh, inequality so i think you know we have the right to pursue happiness. We also have the right to be unhappy from time to time. We also have the right to say, well, you know, there's definitely something we should improve in our societies. Mm-hmm. And I think all of those are valid human emotions.
1: Mm. Let's talk about the period of a period of your unhappiness, because you've spoken about this before, because setting up the Happiness Research Institute was not smooth sailing, was it? <laughs> like why, would you mind telling the listeners why you decided to start it and what actually happened during the creation of it?
2: sure so um, this was uh, 2012 when the idea first came to me so at that time I was working for another think tank in Copenhagen where I uh, headed uh, a team on uh, sustainability and um, but then i had been there for seven years and I thought okay at some point I should do something else and what should that be and At that time I I noticed how much was happening globally with happiness research and happiness and politics. So Mm. you had the UN Commission, the World Happiness Report, uh, also uh, vote on a a UN happiness resolution. You had different governments um, starting to look at new measures for progress using quality of life, using well-being, using happiness. And I thought, wow, there's really a lot going on with happiness globally. Denmark is often doing quite well in these rankings. There should be somebody in Denmark trying to understand why that is the case and create a knowledge center around this field. Mm. And then I thought, maybe I should do that. (laughs) Um, uh, But then on the other hand, I thought, okay, that's also a really crazy thought. And, you know, 2012, in the wake of the financial crisis, I had a steady well-paying job, you know, Mm -hmm. why risk it on something as crazy as a happiness resource? It's crazy as happiness. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, But then, sort of on on, on the personal side, what happened was I had a a friend and a mentor uh, at the company I was working for, uh, who I really looked up to, um, and he was 15 years older than I was, and I thought he was a really good boss, a really good colleague, and um, you know bright and he, he looked like he was a good dad and a good uh, husband to his wife and I thought i want to be him I want to be him in in fifteen years uh, but then unfortunately, he got very ill and and, and died um, over you know four months uh, and 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 he died when he was forty nine and many years ago, my own mother had also died when when she was forty nine so it was two people I had known and had had significance to me that that died when they were 49 and at that time uh, when when my mentor died i was 34 so i had 15 years until i would be 49 Mm. so i started to think okay what if you only live to see 49 what are you going to spend spend the next 15 years doing Mm. are you going to continue with this job which is fine it's Mm. secure it's you know um, it's easy or but you know, you're not really passionate about it, or you could also start this crazy thing called the Happiness Research Institute, which might be a, re- a little bit risky. But I could also just sense that I really wanted to work with this field. Um, so then I I I just quit um, and and um, established uh, the Happiness Research Institute with you know what I thought was a good idea and a, and a bad laptop. Um, <laughs> And I mean, <laughs> yes, I mean, in the beginning, yes, it was tough, and also, you know, financially, and I've stayed on uh, a French couch, couch for, for months. Mm-hmm. Um, but honestly, that is going- Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: To be the best decision that I'm going to make in my career. And I would say even in the beginning, even when it was tough, I felt this is still what I want to do. Mm. And that is a real blessing to have found something that you wanna do and you wanna spend your time on whether you make money on it. Um, do, and then
1: you, do you think it found you or do you think you found it?
2: I have no idea. We found each other, I think. I think, <laughs> I, think I have probably in my 20s and early 30s, I think I've been searching for myself in life and I've had a wide interest academically. I've been interested in politics. I've been interested in economics. I've been interested in psychology and sociology and history, and urban design. And I struggled finding, you know, what my key interest was. But I found with happiness research, I can unite all of those interests because I can look at happiness from a historic perspective. I can look at happiness from a political perspective, psychological perspective, from an urban design perspective. So in in that sense, it became the umbrella that uh, united my, my interests. But I'm not sure whether the, I found the umbrella or it, it came down from <laughs> above.
1: <laughs> and I I find that very interesting because that it sounds like a calling, and it sounds like as soon as that idea was embedded, it was, even if you were on a friend's sofa, even if you weren't making any money and money was an issue, and money can be a very stressful issue, it sounds like you were still going to power power ahead. Right. Anyway. Exactly. And is that part? I mean, is that In your unique recipe for happiness, is that one of the ingredients, pursuing something you know absolutely to be?
2: I I think it's definitely one of the ingredients. I mean, at least it has been for me. And we can also see that in the data. Um, Having a strong sense of purpose, Mm -hmm. having a direction, having long-term goals, uh, finding meaning in what we do uh, is a very good predictor of happiness, Mm -hmm. not just the, the dimension, which is purpose in itself, but also overall life satisfaction. Um, so so personally, I've experienced it, but we can also see that in the data.
1: I'm at a, a, an age where, whether it's me or my friends, we have all at some point in the last 10 years said something along the lines of, I thought if I got that promotion or I thought if I married that person or I thought if I moved to that area, I would be happy. And I'm there and I'm miserable. Right. And I had it in a, in a way with working on magazines. I had this goal. I wanted to have a job on glossy magazines. I got it. I can, you know, list all these celebrities that I'd hobnobbed with. But I fundamentally wasn't happy. Right. And it was very surprising. Um, I wonder what the research comes back with on something like that. Like, the goal-oriented side of it. Like, you know what I mean?
2: Yeah. So... I think the bad news here is <laughs> oh <dear. laughs> uh, I think the bad news is that I don't think there is any one thing that is going to permanently quench our thirst for new goals or ambitions. Mm-hmm. So moving to a bigger flat, or getting that promotion, or getting that raise, we're going to be very happy with that for a while, Mm -hmm. and then we're going to set a new target, right? We are not satisfied with the salary we got five years ago. We're happy with the increase Mm -hmm. we got this year, but then next year we want another 5% or 10% or 2%. Um, In happiness research, there is a phenomenon we call the hedonic treadmill, and that is what you just described. Mm -hmm. We constantly raise the bar for what we feel we need in order to be happy. Now, that's a bit of an annoying thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you know, it's also what has pushed us forward as humans. It's why we look at a red planet in the distant and say, okay, let's put a man <laughs> up there. Um, but it is, it is a constant pursuit of happiness. There is not one accomplishment or ten accomplishments that is going to make us forever happy.
1: Mm-hmm. Happiness isn't a destination.
2: Yes, but I think, I think it's, it's actually good to be aware of that illusion. Because that brings us to, to what you're saying, it's mm. not a destination. I mean, I know it's a cliche, but perhaps shattering that illusion can make us focus on the journey more, knowing that yes, if I accomplish this, yes, I'll be happy for a while, and then I'm going to set a new target. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully it can help us refocus our attention and also understanding that, listen, we have to enjoy the journey forward to that goal because achieving that goal, that's not going to achieve everlasting happiness for us.
1: Mm. I sometimes uh, have spoken about this with my friends recently. like We're all ambitious, but are we not enjoying the ride? Right. Like, yeah. are we just dissatisfied in the moment because we're like, yeah. oh, but I haven't got haven't got that many followers yet, or I haven't got that many downloads right. yet, or yeah. the
2: the trouble with ambition and whether that's the amount of followers or you know, your amount of wealth is that there is always a higher number, mm-hmm. right? Hundred thousand pounds, million pounds, ten million pounds, so on. Um, I think. I think this is a common phenomenon and Mm -hmm. i think it's one of the reasons why we see the pattern when we do when we look at differences between cities and the countryside so if we look at uk but also if we look at denmark if we look at canada all those countries have quite fine-grained studies of happiness levels Mm -hmm. um within the countries we we see the same pattern that despite what you would think, because people are moving to the bigger cities, then people are actually reporting lower levels of life satisfaction, of happiness, in the bigger cities. Mm -hmm. Now, one theory, one explanation could be, well, life is worse in the bigger cities. They're more stressful. We need to make more money to have the same square uh, meters, Mm -hmm. and so on. That might be true. It might also be true that you know it's random where we are born, but it's not random where we choose to live. Mm. So I grew up in a countryside in the countryside of Denmark, small town. Um, I chose to move to, to Copenhagen, which is the, the biggest city in Denmark. When I see who choose to go to the bigger cities, I think, there is a, I think there's a pattern there. I think those people are um, hugely. Generalizing, but I think those people are perhaps more ambitious in terms of career, in terms of education, in perhaps materialistic uh, ambitions. And the, the trouble with being ambitious in that sense is that it means we're chronically dissatisfied with the status quo. Mm-hmm. But we can see in the bigger cities, in Denmark, in the UK, in Canada, people are simply less satisfied with life.
1: Is it the comparison trap?
2: It could be the comparison trap, and it could be that, that we always want more. That our mm-hmm. hedonic treadmill is churning a little bit faster. Mm. Um, so, I feel I'm bringing a lot of bad news to the table here. No, you no. invite a happiness researcher in, <laughs> and then, then you he talked about you know we've done the treadmill, and we're never going to be happy. But I think you know I think it's it, I think it's good to know. I think at least it has helped me mm-hmm. um, being aware of some of the pitfalls there is in happiness mm. um, and, and trying to stay clear of them. And you also mentioned the, you know, comparisons, which is another, I think, human trait that we do compare ourselves to each other um, and um, we care about the position in the social hierarchy. Uh, so, for example, when we look at, at income levels, people often care more about their relative income, so how much money mm-hmm. am I making compared to neighbors and friends and so on, uh, uh, instead of absolute income, so how much am I actually able to consume? Um, so yeah, social comparisons is is another pattern we see quite often in, in happiness research.
1: And I liked the, uh, would you rather live in a city where you earn 25000 no, 50000 and everyone else earn twenty five. Or where you earned 100,000 but everyone else earned 200,000. Right. And I feel like the video that I saw, your audience fibbed.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and yet, yeah, yeah, on, on average, uh, 50, 50% choose the first scenario. So making absolute less mm-hmm. but relatively more than mm-hmm. everybody else in a society. Right. And that's a testimony to the importance of the, the position in the social hierarchy. Mm. It's also why we can see sometimes when cities when countries get richer when gdp levels goes up happiness levels don't necessarily go up because well if everybody just doubles their income we're still stuck in the same place in the social hierarchy Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a lot of challenges out Mm. there how (laughs) does something
1: like meditation uh, impact happiness and the reason i wanted to come at it from this angle is because when i was researching you and the happiness research institute i uh kept coming back to this uh, sort of elastic band feeling of but if you can just be happy in every single moment that you're in then that's that's actually a really strong pillar right to happiness yeah
2: no that that is true
1: even even in a moment where on the surface it might look like you should be feeling rubbish
2: that that is true and 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 Earlier we talked about these different dimensions mm-hmm. of happiness, and one of them was, you know, what kind of emotions do we experience here and now—positive uh, and negative emotions—and we can see there is a connection with that and overall life satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So, if you have an everyday with positive emotions, you are probably also more likely to report higher levels of life satisfaction. So your here and now mm-hmm. also impact when you take a step back and sort of evaluate your life, um, and we do see effects on well-being uh, from practices of, of meditation. So, so one case is um, Bhutan uh, where there have been a, a study. So, some of you probably heard of Bhutan before. You know, small country, eastern Himalayas. They have navigated from uh, gross national happiness uh, since the beginning of the 70s mm-hmm. instead of gross national product. But, uh, There's also been studies of a essentially mindfulness exercise in some of their schools. So, as I understand it, it's been a randomized trial. So some schools had this, and some schools didn't. Um, A mindfulness exercise they called brain brushing at the beginning of the school day, and I think also ending the school day. And it showed positive results for the students participating in this, not just on their well-being levels, but also on their academic levels. So there are Different uh, studies that 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 do show a a positive impact on uh, from meditation.
1: And what about age? Like to draw a very um, big line in the sand, you know, millennials versus baby boomers. Is there a distinction that you've noted?
2: Yeah. So if we just if we take a snapshot Mm. of the global population now, or the population in the UK or Denmark, we would see a U shape. So, people are happy when they're young and happy when they're old, but midlife, mid-40s, global average, is the low point for happiness. So I'm headed rapidly downhill <laughs> these years. Um, but I mean, that, that's a snapshot. So we cannot be certain that that's an age thing. it might also be a generational thing. Mm-hmm. so um, what we need there is we, we need those studies that I talked about earlier where we follow people over time. Mm-hmm. So ideally we would follow a generation from their very young to their old. And then we can see, okay, is there the same mm-hmm. pattern when we follow the same individuals over time? If we see the same pattern, then we can start to talk about, okay, what is the reason mm-hmm. for being at a no point midlife? Is it, well, okay, now we did the checklist. We married, you know. The right spouse, we moved to the right neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We thought we found the right job, and we're still not happy, mm-hmm. and we struggle with that. Mm-hmm. Or is it that a lot of people in their mid forties are trying to juggle family life and a career? Or is it mid forties we accept? You know, listen, when I was young, I thought I would be you know international soccer star. Well, I didn't. <laughs> uh, or you know, you thought you'd be the new Whitney Houston? Or, yeah, I still or think young, it, Mike. I still right? think it. Um, and when we're mid-40s, or at least I, I, I probably came to that conclusion earlier, uh, <laughs> that I knew I was never going to be an international rock star or an uh, um, international soccer player. And, and that might be hard to, to swallow for some. So different theories if we see that pattern, but, but we're not necessarily sure we, we have that pattern until we follow a generation four Mm. uh, from Crip to
1: Great. Yes, there might not be um, data on this yet, but I'm curious. Are we, is our idea of happiness distorted by advertising and marketing?
2: Yes, I think it is. I think think so. I mean, (laughs) listen, I mean, we are exposed to so many different commercials. Every day, all of us, and, and our view of the world and what a normal life looks like or feels like is probably influenced by those things we see. We think we have to look in the right way. We think we have to uh, be a mom or a dad in the right way. We think we have to do a lot of things in the right way. And, and, and you know the, the essence of marketing is to create an itch Right? Mm-hmm. something we want, something we don 't have, and I think Marcus Aurelius, uh, the ancient Roman emperor, perhaps said it best when it came to well he was probably not talking about marketing uh, <laughs> but but that 's essentially what he was because he said you know happiness is not does not come from having a lot of possessions but having few wants, and the aim of marketing is to plant a want, a desire mm-hmm. in people, so if they are successful, when well, there is something we want, we don't have, when that's going to influence our happiness.
1: So are you a follower of the Stoic philosophies? Sorry? Are you a, a Stoic follower? <laughs> Do you read a lot of...
2: I, I, I mean, the, one of my earliest colleagues is Aristotle. Uh, <laughs> he was the very first uh, one of the very first happiness researchers. He wrote extensively on happiness. And I think there is a lot of wisdom uh, to be found in in some of the the ancient uh, philosophers he talked about a sense of purpose he he talked about having good friends he talked about being a a good citizen I think all of those ideas around what provides a good and happy life are just as valid today Um,
1: so it's a constant and uh, Aristotle was around a while ago so it's a constant but it's almost as if do they need recalibrating based on the advancements that we make in things like technology and society?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, there, there are some constants across cultures and across time. So Aristotle, a couple of thousand years ago, mm. but there are still elements of the same, but it's, it's like everything else, it's being mm. renegotiated all the time. So we could also see, you know, history have shaped uh, perception of happiness, but I think also happiness have shaped history.
1: Mm. And we can
2: see how, for example, no, the Christian view of happiness have influenced our view of happiness. Um, also, the ancient view of happiness that it was tied to luck. In some languages, luck and happiness is also the same word. It is in mm-hmm. German, it is in Danish, uh, for instance. So, so, I think some of the, the ancient perceptions of what happiness is are still present here today. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's about purpose or whether it's about pleasure, that's also an ancient discussion. I think that's also valid here today. Um, um, so, so, so we see threats of very old discussions in this field. And I think it's also why the perception of happiness is so wide as it is, because mm-hmm. it's been a conversation that's been going on for 2,000 years.
1: Yes. I, he was, my brother was telling me, I think Marcus Aurelius. He said, "You must read it, but get the modern translation of Marcus well, Aurelius because yeah. it's quite heavy. <laughs> it's quite a lot." Um, what message do you have for cynics and pessimists who would consider themselves realists? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, what, what is it? Was it? Oh, I forget who it was that said it. You know, uh, you know. Cynicism is the ability to observe things correctly by people that does not perceive or have that ability. I disagree with that. Okay. So, <laughs> so I like to say, you know, the thing about pessimism is that it doesn't work. Um, I think, fortunately, we are optimists. When... Um, when we, when we aren't, goodness, there's, sorry, guys. there's a bit of drilling going on.
1: Yeah. Okay. Let's just carry All on. Right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pessimism. So, pessimism. Right. I'm going to be optimistic I'm now. I'm sure about that's going to stop <laughs> Let's just crack on.
2: Oh, goodness. Putting the optimist to the test. Yes. Like it. It's a real life experiment. I'm so, happy
1: right now. Right in this minute. <laughs> I am very, very happy.
2: But see, when, when the drilling stops, we're going to be very happy. <laughs> so, so. In, in, in the bigger studies, nowadays, do people are not only asked how satisfied are you with life now, but also how satisfied with life do you expect to be five years from now? Mm-hmm. And we can see globally there is a wide level of optimism, especially among young people, mm-hmm. uh, that they expect to be um, significantly happier in five years than they are today.
1: Mm-hmm. If you had to um, give like... If there's only one thing you leave here with today, these are, these are three things that I advise anybody to do because I think they would be nice component parts of your recipe for happiness. What should people be working on?
2: Um, I think that, I mean, there is, the, again, the short-term goal and the long-term goal. Mm-hmm. I think the long-term goal is creating the right conditions for good lives politically reducing inequalities, reducing injustices but I think that the the short term goal and what we could all sort of do differently tomorrow compared to today is follow, we have something called ABC for mental health in Denmark Mm -hmm. so things you can do to boost your mood today which is a a three step, very basic Um, do something active Uh, we can also see people who are outside, people who are engaged in activity that sort of absorbs their focus mm-hmm. are happier in the moment so do something active for you know, preferably go outside do something together with other people so connecting with others having somebody you can rely on in times of need also good for mood and overall life satisfaction and then third do something meaningful mm-hmm. so finding something that is meaningful to you whatever that is whether it's building a happiness research institute or A career Mm -hmm. as a Whitney Houston uh,
1: impersonator. It sounds wrong. It does. You would.
2: I'm sure you. I do sweat like Whitney, though. (laughs) (laughs) But I think you know. That's the best universal advice we can give. Every person is individual. Every person has his or her challenges. Uh, But I think doing something active, doing something together with other people, doing something meaningful that's a good standard advice we could give to most people.
1: And I feel as though, as well, another important thing to say might be to have confidence in what makes you happy. Right. Because that sort of, it's tied in with the comparison trap a little bit, but it's just to hell with what anyone else thinks about what makes you feel good.
2: Yeah. And that might actually be one of the explanations why we see that increase from our late 40s or mid 40s to later in life. That maybe at that time in life, We stop giving cares about what Mm -hmm. other people think or other people's opinions of what we should and shouldn't do in order to, to be happy. But that time in life, we're perhaps more confident, we care less about, in a good way, the opinions of others and can start to prioritize things that actually makes us happy.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, obviously, I'm going to put the link in the show notes to your books. But the latest book, could you just wrapping up in a nice nugget for me, so uh, so the listeners can get a sense of what they're in store for, in addition to having listened to you on right. the
2: show. So, so the latest book uh, is called "The Little Book of Lücke, uh the Danish. Uh, oh sorry. No. The, the, the late, yeah, sorry the latest book is called The Little Book of, of Lucky, but it's also published uh, in paperback under the keys to happiness mm-hmm. and that's a uh, global treasure hunt looking for what are people around the world doing right in terms of improving quality of life mm-hmm. so that's the latest one and then I have a new one coming out in September uh, called The Art of Making Memories mm-hmm. so why do we remember what we remember and how can we create memorable moments uh, that makes us happy and be better to hold on to those moments.
1: And one of the things that really gut punched me when I was um, reading it before uh, we spoke was and I'm perhaps going to forget it but it was something um, not get it right sorry is um, people who remember their past fondly and positively will be happier. Right rather than and I'm definitely somebody who thinks oh I made that mistake at that job or I fell out with that person at that time Right. and actually it, I need to flip it and look back at the wonderful things that were happening in that timeline not the negative Yeah. because that has a huge impact if, on...
2: if we are able and become can be, I think we can become better at forming a positive narrative mm-hmm. of our life story then yes it seems to have positive impact on how satisfied we are with life mm-hmm. and our mood in general
1: Very, very interesting. So do you, um, at the Happiness Research Institute, as well as collecting the data, do you have any... Do you um, work with people and say, right, this is how you could tweak how you're living without sort of bossing them around? (laughs) So that you you can leave this room, and if you apply this thing of, right, when you think about that old job that you currently think about as being, oh, the place where I had that awful boss walk out of this room and think about it as, oh, that's the place where I did that project really well. Is that, is that something that you, those tools that you hand to people?
2: Yeah, so we work with a lot of different uh, organizations, both companies and cities and even governments. And some of those projects are essentially, essentially where we turn a company or a city into a happiness lab. Mm-hmm. So where we measure continuously, on happiness levels among the citizens or the employees and try to understand what are the drivers of well-being mm. in this organization and then, together with the city or the organization, uh, create interventions or experiments we hope or expect would have a positive impact on mm. the drivers of happiness. So, so we, do, um, we do work like that, yes.
1: Okay, interesting. Right, well, thank you very much. I hope that you are happy for having recorded this episode. I know I am. And I hope you are (laughs) um, two listeners. I will obviously put the links to Mike and the Happiness Research Institute and the books and your TED Talk in the show notes. But thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening and spending time with Mike and I and uh, a room full of people behind us if you want to get in touch with the show please do email me at thebeautypodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com or you can slide into my DMs on Instagram and Twitter where I'm at Emma Guns. you can also join that wonderful closed Facebook group which is a beautiful safe space full of thousands of other listeners of the show having uh, conversations about this episode other episodes, other topics, related topics it really is social media at its best so why not join in the fun thank you so much for listening I'll see you on the next one only from rustolium